0: is isn't our permanent home, and because of that, we should expect to face trials. That's what we talked about in week one. In week two, we talked about how we should act in the midst of these culture wars, the fact that you and I are called to be light to the world, even when the world is persecuting us. We talked about how we should submit to authority unless that authority is asking us to do something that contradicts God's word. Then in week three, we compared a lot of the misinformation that culture tries to push on us about family and about husbands and wives with what the Bible says about those topics and those roles. And then last week, we saw that there's not just this battle that's going on around us, there's a battle that's going on within us as our new self battles against old thoughts old temptations and old habits. And we saw that the way to win that battle within was to recklessly pursue God, to let His Spirit work in us and through us. I just want to remind you, if you missed any of those and you want to go back and and dig into those, you can always go to pursuegod.org and you'll see the podcast for each of those sermons or you can watch the small group video. Or if you want to listen to the full-length audio sermon, you can go to alpinechurch.org. Click on the resources tab and you'll see those. Now today is this last day of Culture Wars and I hope that today's message brings you some encouragement. Can you go back to the one? Thanks, Robert. Because you may be feeling a little discouraged after spending four straight weeks talking about how we're in a battle. Maybe this series has made you a little more sensitive to all that is wrong in the world. You think about the events that are happening on the world stage right now, or even events that are happening close to home, and you might have been tempted to say, what's the point? Why fight this battle against culture when it seems like we're not making any headway? I mean, I confess, there's been multiple times over the last several years that I've thought, Jesus, just come back and put an end to all this. And I'm not saying it's wrong to long for Jesus, but we need to remember that God's timing is perfect. And we're not the first generation to wonder what's taking Jesus so long. In fact, the Apostle Peter in his second letter to the early church addressed that very thing in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, Not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. See, all the way back in Peter's time, people were wishing Jesus would just come back. This is nothing new for us. That's the promise Peter's talking about in verse 9 there. But we can trust God's timing. We can trust God's patience And we're going to talk today that our battle against culture is not a losing effort. We know ultimately who is going to be victorious, and that's going to bring us into our first point today. In 1 Peter 5, Peter reminds the church that the battle with our culture is not a losing effort. Thirty years earlier, Jesus was the one reminding Peter See, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 5 today, we're going to see a lot of parallels between 1 Peter chapter 5 and Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is giving final instructions to the disciples. And as one of the disciples, Peter would have been there. Peter would have heard the teaching. He would have been receiving these instructions from Jesus. And now, 30 years later... He's passing on much of the same teaching to the early church that he heard that night from the Messiah. And we're going to see both in the life of Peter, if we were to look at his life, and in this letter to the early church that Peter not only heard the instruction of Jesus, he put it into practice. He acted on it. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to spend all of our time basically in 1 Peter 5 and Luke 22, if you want to join us there. Now, let's start with some context for what's going on in Luke chapter 22, because context is always important. So this is the last night that Jesus is spending with his disciples. It's the night that he's going to be betrayed. And so he celebrates the Passover with them. And during that Passover, he takes the bread and he says, this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. And he takes the wine. And he said, this, blood, this cup represents my blood, my blood, which is going to be shed for you. Then shortly after that, he tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And they start to argue among themselves about who that's going to be. And then they begin to to question Jesus, surely not I, Lord. And then that argument leads into an argument about who's going to be the greatest among them, which seemed to be a fairly common topic of conversation amongst the disciples. And then Jesus begins to teach them. With all that is weighing on him, knowing that his betrayal, arrest, beating, and crucifixion are just hours away, he slows down and he teaches them and encourages them. What an amazing, compassionate Savior we serve. So now that we know some of the context in Luke chapter 22, I want to see how the instructions that Peter gives the church in First Peter echo so much of what Jesus gave the disciples in Luke chapter 22. So we're going to have Jesus' instructions to the disciples on the left, Peter's instructions to the early church on the right. And we'll see that Jesus' instructions he gave in about 33 AD, and then 30 years later in 63 AD, we see Peter write his epistle to the early church. And the first thing that we're going to see in today's lesson Is that we need to approach the battle with humility. Here's how Jesus talks about it in Luke 22. All right, Robert, I'm not going to fool with it. You just lead me through it. Okay, Luke chapter 22 says, Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lord it over their people, but among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. So Jesus had just finished telling the disciples that one of them was going to betray them, and they began to argue about who it was going to be. And then in other Gospels, we see that they come to Jesus and they say, surely not I, Lord. And it's likely that this argument then led into the argument about who was going to be the greatest among the disciples. And I can just picture Peter being the one to get that argument started if we know about Peter's history and his personality. And this argument about who was going to be the greatest seemed to be fairly common. We know of at least four times that Scripture talks about it. It's mentioned in Matthew 18, Matthew 20, Mark 9, and Luke 9 in addition to Luke 22. In fact, it seems that James and John even got their mother involved in the argument when she asked Jesus if one of them considered his right hand and one considered his left hand in his kingdom. And Jesus responds and says, guys, you, you just don't get it. In God's kingdom, the greatest leader is the one who serves. In God's kingdom, the greatest leader is the one who humbles himself or herself And takes the position of the lowliest servant. And Jesus didn't just talk about leading like that. That's what Jesus did. Scripture says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. In fact, it was either just before this conversation or during it or just after that Jesus would wash the feet of His disciples. That the King of all kings and Lord of all lords would humble himself to the position of the lowliest servant and wash their feet, even Judas's feet, who he knew would betray him later that evening. That's the Savior that we serve. And I'm sure 30 years later that image was etched in Peter's mind as he wrote to the early church. So here's how Peter writes it in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Now The word that's translated dress here, dress yourselves in humility, typically that was used to describe a servant Putting on an apron. That's exactly what Jesus did in Luke 22. We know from John's gospel that it says that Jesus got up from the table, he took off his outer garment, and he tied a towel or an apron around his waist. So clearly that impacted Peter's writing as he tells us to dress ourselves in humility. I read that, and to me, there's almost something ironic about Peter being the one to say, Dress yourselves in humility. Right, this is the, the same Peter who often argued about who was going to be the greatest. This is the same Peter that Jesus rebuked and said, Get behind me, Satan, because Peter dared to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to be delivered into the, to the hands of men and I'm going to be killed. This is the same Peter that on the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter said, even if all these guys desert you, I won't. If all these other guys chicken out, I won't, Jesus, I'll die With you. And we know that on that very night, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three different times. Scripture tells us that Jesus then looked at Peter as the rooster crowed. Peter met Jesus' eyes, and it says that he left weeping bitterly. That kind of experience will humble a man. See Peter recognized what it was like to not clothe yourself in humility. He knew better than anyone the sting of a prideful fall. But he learned from it. So if you back up just a little bit if you have your bibles open in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, Peter addresses the elders of the church. And depending upon the translation you're reading, he either identifies himself as a fellow elder or it says I am an elder too you see the humility in that? See Peter could have said, I'm the chief apostle. Peter could have said, I'm one of the most, if not the most significant leader of the church, but he didn't. He simply said, I'm an elder just like you. He remembered Jesus' teaching that those who have the greatest position should take the lowest rank. And he simply said, I'm an elder like you are. What changed? What caused Peter to have so much humility? I think first and foremost, he is now indwelled with the Holy Spirit, something that he didn't have the night he denied Jesus three times. But I think he also realized from that terrible, dreadful experience when he denied Jesus three times, the sting that comes from pride. See, God redeemed that in Peter's life. God took one of Peter's worst mistakes, if not his very worst mistake, and he turned it in to something good. He taught Peter humility from that, and now Peter teaches us to be humble. Praise God that God is a God of redemption. If you're sitting here today and you think that you're too far gone, that your mistakes are too big, that you've done too much for God to ever use you, that is a lie from the devil. God specializes in taking things that are broken and using them for his honor and his glory. And God can and will use you if you'll just submit to him, if you'll just clothe yourself in humility. He goes on to tell the elders to shepherd the flock, not by compulsion, but by willingness and then he says, don't lord it over the flock that God has called you to shepherd, but be examples to them. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus told them to do in Luke chapter 22. He then calls younger people in the congregation to show humility and submission to the elders in the church. And then in verse 5 he says, all of you dress yourself in humility. Then you're going to see some quotation marks in the next part of that passage where he says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's because that's a a passage from the Old Testament that comes from Proverbs chapter 3. And then Peter reminds us that when we humble ourselves to one another, we're actually humbling ourselves before Almighty God. And when we do that, at the right time in God's timing, He's going to lift us up. He's going to lift us up in honor. So though we may be currently mocked We may be ridiculed, we may be shunned at the right time when Jesus is revealed, you're going to be lifted up in honor as a follower of Christ. And That's going to bring us into our second point for today's sermon, and that's that Satan is the real enemy, not culture. Satan is the real enemy, not culture. It is so important to know who the real enemy is. As I was preparing for this sermon, I did a fair amount of research on friendly fire incidents. So if you're not familiar with that term, friendly fire, it's you know, when someone in the military or law enforcement inflicts casualties on their own team. You, know, you might have heard it called blue on blue, or, but it's when we shoot the good guys, if we think we're the good guys, right? Did you know in some wars, friendly fire accounted for as much as 10% of all casualties? One of the worst examples was at the very end of World War II. It happened one day before Germany officially surrendered, and British Royal Air Force planes sunk three German ships that they thought were carrying German military officials who were trying to escape to Norway, when in reality they were carrying 7,300 civilians who had just been liberated from German German concentration camps. All 7,300 people were killed. Carnage happens when we fight the wrong enemy. Friendly fire happens much closer to home. One of the things I try to to remind couples when I'm doing marriage counseling, and one of the things I always talk about when I do premarital counseling, is your spouse is not the enemy. I remember I'd only been married like two months, and my wife and I went to a marriage conference up at Snowbird Resort. I was still in school, And I was a cheapskate. I'm still a cheapskate, but I was really a cheapskate then. So we paid like $160 for the conference. The room up there was over a hundred a night. I mean, it was a big deal for us back then. And the topic, the first night of the conference, was your spouse is not the enemy. Now keep in mind I'd only been married a couple of months, so I had never even considered that my spouse was the enemy. So for about an hour and a half, I just sat there like this and I thought, this guy's an idiot. I paid $300 to listen to this like I was just totally had a bad attitude about it. I have gone back to that foundational truth over the last 26 years more times than I can count that my spouse is not the enemy. When my wife and I have conflict, I remind myself that she is not the enemy. She wants the same things I do. She wants a healthy marriage. She wants to parent our children well. She wants to honor God in the way we relate to one another. She's not the enemy. There is an enemy. (laughs) There is an enemy who wants to destroy our marriage. There's an enemy who wants to destroy your marriage. But it's not her. It's the devil. See, the same is true in the culture wars. There is an enemy, but it's not culture. And by culture, I'm talking about the people around us. I know it feels like culture is the enemy because culture is what we see. In tangible ways, we see culture doing things that we know are against the will of God. We see people saying things and acting out in ways that we know are sinful. And so it's easy to forget that those people are created in the image of God. And because of that, they have immeasurable value. They're the ones we want to lash out against. But behind the scenes, there is a real enemy who is orchestrating all of that. There is a spiritual battle going on. And Jesus had to remind the disciples of that in Luke chapter 22. Here's what he says to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. See, Simon and the rest of the disciples were ignorant of the spiritual battle that was going on behind the scenes. Now, if you have a translation in your Bible that says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, the you there is plural. So even though he's addressing Peter, Jesus is saying, Satan has asked to sift all of you, all of the disciples like wheat. I find it interesting and comforting that Satan had to ask for permission says Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. So even though Satan is known as the prince of this world, he does not have free reign over it. He can't just do whatever he wants to do. He had to get permission from God. Satan wanted to completely crush the disciples. He wanted to sift them like wheat and turn them into shafts so they would just blow away. Kind of reminds me of the story of Job, where Satan had to come before God and get permission to bring trials upon Job. And I hope that that brings you encouragement. That you would know that anything you're going through, even if the devil is behind it, Almighty God has allowed it to happen. And you can trust Him because He has a plan and He has a purpose in it. I also hope it brings you much encouragement that Jesus prayed for Peter because He also prays for you, He says, Simon, I have pleaded in prayer for you. Jesus pleads in prayer for us as well. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, and he is Jesus, therefore Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus intercedes with God the Father for you. And I'm sure as Peter wrote to the early church, he remembered the words of Jesus and that the battle is really a spiritual battle. Here's how Peter writes it He says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in the faith. He says, Stay alert. You can't be lazy about it. You need to pay attention. Some translations say, Stay, uh, be sober for our great enemy, the devil. Clearly, that's who the real enemy is. It may feel like everyone is against us. It may feel like it's culture, but behind that, our great enemy is really Satan. Then it talks about how he prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is a created being. He can only be in one place at one time, but he is roaming around. He is on the prowl. Here he is described as a roaring lion. You know, John Brewer, who attends here, he and I have had multiple conversations about this verse because typically a lion who is hunting doesn't roar. A lion who's hunting is silent. I think Peter describes him as a roaring lion here because the roar of a lion struck fear into all who heard it. See, sometimes Satan comes at us like a roaring lion, loud and full of intimidation. The Bible also describes him as a fowler. That's someone who captured birds and a fowler was always silent and secretive. Sometimes that's how the devil attacks us. He's also described as an angel of light appearing good and glorious. How is he attacking you today? Is he coming at you like a roaring lion? Are you struggling with an addiction and he's yelling at you, you'll never break it. You're not strong enough. Or is he masquerading as an angel of light? He's just saying, God just wants you to be happy. God wants you to buy that new truck or new car, even though you're already drowning in debt. However he's attacking you, Peter reminds us to stand firm and be strong in the faith. I love how Charles Spurgeon talks about this verse. He says, stand firm, resist, be more prayerful every time the devil is active. He will soon give it up if he finds that his attacks drive you to Christ. Often has Satan been nothing but a big black dog to drive Christ's sheep to the Master. When you feel that attack, if it will drive you to Jesus, eventually he'll give it up. Because he sure doesn't want you going to Jesus. So if the devil is roaring at you right now, draw near to the good shepherd. He will protect you. Pursue him recklessly like we talked about last week. And you're going to find the roar of the devil gets quieter and quieter, and quieter. Ephesians 6.12, Paul also knew our battle was spiritual. On the left, it says, For We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul knew it was a spiritual battle. And he talks about evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world, and mighty powers of this dark world. This tells me a couple of things. Even though the devil is not omnipresent, his agents of evil are everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to get out from under their attack. It also seems to me that he's highly organized. There are rulers and authorities. There is a hierarchy to Satan's army. Now, I confess, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it means he's strategic. He isn't just attacking you at random. There's a battle plan behind it that his subordinates are carrying out. He knows when you're at your weakest and that's likely when he's going to attack. It's so important to remind ourselves who the real enemy is. See if we're spending most of our energy fighting the wrong enemy, we're not going to win the battle. Now, God's already won the war, but we're going to lose the battle if we don't know who the enemy is. I see so many Christians who are fighting against culture through social media, through the way they interact with culture. They're fighting culture, but they never fight the real enemy. So much wasted energy and effort. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to take a stand against culture sometimes. Absolutely, sometimes we do. But we need to do it in a way that honors God. We need to do it in a way that directs our attack at the real enemy. That's why in in chapter two, Peter's talking about how you need to be a light to the culture around you even when they persecute you. So you need to take your stand in a way that honors God. And we don't have to fight the culture wars in fear or desperation because guess what? (laughs) We already know who won. God has already won the ultimate victory. We know how this is going to play out. We know that one day we're going to be lifted high in honor. And we're going to spend eternity in the presence of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that brings us to our last point, and that's that we need to trust God for ultimate victory. Here's how Jesus talks about it in Luke 22. He says, You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's, he's talking to the disciples. Now in just a minute, he's going to tell the disciples that you're all going to scatter. You're all going to fall away. But here, up to this point, he says, you've stayed with me in my time of trial. So the disciples had been through a lot with Jesus. There had been a lot of ups and downs already and they hadn't left. They didn't go to follow another rabbi even when Jesus' teachings seem hard to understand. So here we see they're going to be rewarded for their service. Jesus knew they were going to be scattered but he knew when that happened that their faith was going to falter. It was not going to fail. It was temporary. They were going to be restored and once empowered by the Holy Spirit they would be courageous in their service to God. And so remembering what Jesus had said to them that night, here's how Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 5. It says, In His kindness God called you to share in His eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, He will restore, support, and strengthen you. And He will place you on a firm foundation, all power to Him forever. Amen. So, why did God call you to share in His eternal glory? How does that verse start? Is it because you are better than your neighbor? Is it because you served Him well? In His kindness, He called you. He called you because of His character, not anything that you have done. And how do we share in this eternal glory? by means of Christ Jesus. Through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross and His resurrection, we can share in the eternal glory of God. Then Peter reminds the church in this last part of the letter that there's going to be suffering. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, and it's written in the definitive, it's going to happen. But he says, after that, you're going to be lifted up. You're going to be restored, supported, and strengthened. And who better to talk about restoration than Peter? Peter had experienced it firsthand from his Savior. We've talked a lot about that dreadful night when Peter denied that he knew him three times, but there's this beautiful scene in John 21 when Jesus is talking with Peter and he gives him three opportunities to affirm his love for him. Once for each time, he denied him. And every time he asked, Peter says, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. Even that Peter passed on to the elders, right? Earlier in the chapter, he said, take care of the flock. Peter took so much of what Jesus had imparted to him and shared it with the early church. And were promised not only restoration, but support, strength, and to be placed on a firm foundation. Now, tradition tells us that all of the disciples except John were martyred, including Peter. Does that mean God broke his promise? Does that mean he wasn't faithful? Absolutely not. God was faithful. They were restored and strengthened and supported in a way that none of us will fully understand until we're with Jesus face to face. And he'll do that for eternity. And what does it mean to share in his glory? Like we don't talk about, we're not a glory culture. We don't talk about that. What does that mean? Well, I think here are a couple of things. It's the glory of a purified character that one of, the, one of these days, all of this junk in my character, and my heart is going to be gone and I'm going to look like Jesus. I'm going to have a character like Him. It's the glory of perfected humanity. It's the glory of complete victory. It's the glory of being in the immediate and continuous presence of Almighty God. It's the glory that we have of being able to reflect His glory to everyone around us. All of these things are going to happen for us as believers. They're promised to us as followers of Christ. And any hardship, any battle, any trial we face before then, can't even compare to it. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. That's why it's a battle worth fighting. That's why this is not a losing effort. That's why we need to stand firm. That's why we need to have strength in the faith because we're going to be victorious. In light of this promise of sharing in God's eternal glory, in chapter 5, one of the more famous verses in chapter 5 is verse 5-7 where Peter says, cast your cares upon the Lord for He cares For you. Who better to talk about casting than a fisherman like Peter? (laughs) And that's what that word cast means. It means to throw it. Throw your cares upon the Lord. Don't lay them down and stay there tempted to pick them back up. Get rid of them. Cast your cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. Throw them to the God who cares for you and who invites you to share in eternal glory. As I wrap up, I just want to remind you that the means by which we can do that has nothing to do with our acts, our work, our service. It's all about what Jesus did for us on the cross. That Jesus, God in the flesh, came and lived the perfect life that you and I can never live. And he went to the cross and paid the debt that we should have paid. And when we put our faith in him and we trust him for that, when we say, Jesus, we need a Savior I am a sinner, I am broken, I need what you did for me at the cross. The Bible says this amazing transaction takes place, that he takes our guilt and shame, and we get clothed in his righteousness. If you have any questions about that, I want to talk about that more. We would love to talk with you after the service. For those of us who've already done that, I pray that we would fight the good fight this week, but that we'd fight the right enemy, that we'd do it in a way that honors God, and that we'd rest in the truth, that we already know who the winner is. Let's pray. God, I, I just want to thank you for picking me to be on the team. <laughs> I thank you, God, that because of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in you, that, that we're going to be victorious one day. And that all these hang-ups and habits and and shortcomings and just flat-out rebellion that we still struggle with, even when we're believers because of that old habit and that fallen nature, one of these days, God, you're going to clean all that up. It's going to be gone, and every essence of us is only going to long to worship and serve you, and it's going to be awesome. God, I don't want to steal the thunder from the worship team, but we're going to sing this song, Echo Holy, in a minute. And this picture of a million angels falling face down on the floor and singing over and over again, Holy is the Lord. And we're going to get to take part in that. We're going to get to worship you for eternity and serve you. And God, we we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But you call us out of your kindness, and we just say thank you. Jesus, we do long for your return. We long to go home. But we trust in your timing, in your goodness. So I just pray, God, that this week we would fight the fight well. We'd fight it in a way that honors you In a way where we would be light to the world around us. And thank you for the victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's fitting that we spend a lot of time in Luke 22 today because we're going to celebrate communion today. So on that night that Jesus was betrayed, as he sat with the disciples, he took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body which is going to be broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood which is going to be shed for you. And so... We celebrate that the first week uh, of every month here. We do it because Jesus called us to do it in remembrance of him, and we do it because it's a beautiful visual picture of a spiritual reality. If you didn't grab a communion cup on your way in and you'd like one, our ushers have some in the back. Just raise your hand and they can make sure they get you one. We invite anyone who is trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins to celebrate with us. So whether you're a regular attender here or not, it doesn't matter if you're trusting in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, we invite you to celebrate. So I'm going to pray for us. The worship team is just going to play a little bit in the background and give you a couple of minutes to reflect, a couple of minutes to thank God for the sacrifice. And then as you're ready, just peel the top layer off to, to get to that little wafer and then peel the second layer off to get to the juice. And then in a few moments, the worship team is going to lead us in our closing song. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this amazing sacrifice that we celebrate today. We thank you, Jesus, for being obedient all the way to the cross. We thank you for this amazing exchange that takes place where we get to be clothed in your righteousness and you took our guilt and shame and you nailed it to the cross. And so, God, we just we just say thank you. We say have your way in us. Help us to be humble. Help us to to clothe ourselves in humility like we talked about today, not only with culture, but with you, that we would give you reign and authority. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.